Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association based at Wits University, Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast engages with issues about university life relevant to students and staff looking in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular area. My name is Nosipum gomez And I'm Kolega Shani. And Maria are your hosts. Hi, I'm Tony Daniels and I'm a student at UNISA. Well, I think journals are perfect. What can I say? Proof of what academics who teach us are capable. It shows us their line of thought and current research and as a result, they remain relevant and moving with the times. Competition should be kept high. I believe so as to maintain the standard. On today's episode, we speak with Oscar Massignana, who is the managing editor of Taylor and Francis South Africa. Taylor and Francis publishes around 70 highly regarded academic and professional journals from the region in collaboration with learned societies, institutions, and co-publishers. They're committed to disseminating and showcasing South African and African research in the global online environment in a variety of subject areas, ranging from the arts to zoology. Building on a tradition of scholarly work on Africa, Taylor and Francis operates from an editorial office in Johannesburg to support and strengthen regional journals whilst drawing on the resources of their global operations in the headquarters in the United Kingdom. Welcome to the show, Oscar. Welcome to the show, Oscar. Uh, thank you for having me, Doctor. <laughs> um, so today we're chatting about this kind of big thing that you hear about in academia when you start researching when you start teaching it's publish or perish and causes a lot of anxiety and people are often quite confused so i'm really excited to have you on the show today to just talk about the ins and outs of the publishing world (laughs) thank you for having us it's exciting to talk about the topic yeah so let's start off with a very broad and general question around what makes for a good academic article i mean is a question of novelty do i have to have reinvented the wheel how much of my new genius do I have to demonstrate in order to know my article is ready to go out? I think overall that question differs from discipline to discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, but the basic principles is that you have something new to say, okay. and you or you are saying something that someone has said, but in a way that is fresh or mm-hmm. from a very particular perspective. It's almost like writing. Um, uh, a dissertation proposal where each and every department or even your supervisor will request that you point out what it is about the study that you're doing that is fresh and they won't necessarily let you essentially rewrite or research something that has already out there. Mm. So an, an article is really about there's a novelty element to it, mm. but also demonstrating, yeah, demonstrating knowledge, challenging uh, existing notions, mm. reinventing the wheel to some extent. But I think people shouldn't put that much pressure on that particular element of it. Mm. it the key is just you have something to say, you have a very particular way to say it, and it's new. And, and you're using certain principles to report that your findings and those principles shift or differ from department to department. For you guys as publishers, what do you look for? What are the 
the things that flag for you that this is something that we are ready to send to maybe a reviewer? Okay, so that that's a question that would be more appropriate to ask an editor of a journal. Mm. So what I do as a publisher, I manage the journals that mm. publish their actual research. What that means is that the editors of, a, of singular journals are the ones who make those decisions about okay. what they consider to be interesting enough within the field or to be new enough and whether it's worth them sending it off to a reviewer for reviewing. In general, editors have a, a very democratic approach in how in what they send to reviewers. They always specify, each journal specifies quite precisely what its aims and scope is, right? Mm. So if an article comes in and it fits within the broad elements of what that journal publishes or focuses on, that article will be sent for, mm. out for review. When it won't be sent out for review is if it's so outside the field or the niche area that that journal focuses on that there's no point for, for the editor to ask reviewers to even mm. look at it because then it will be a waste of the reviewer's time. Mm. But that same paper could be perfectly appropriate for publication in another title whose aims and scope happens to fit area of research that that paper is looking is looking at. So for kind of new academics and young researchers, you'd mm -hmm. advise them to actually look at like the aims and scopes of the particular journal? It's the starting point. Yeah. There is absolutely no point in sending your article to a journal whose aims and scope you are not aware of. Mm -hmm. of. You have to read what the journal is looking for. Because I'll take an example with my own discipline, linguistics. Mm. So you will have linguistics, you have social linguistics within linguistics, and even within social linguistics, you've got semantics, you've got pragmatics. You, you know, fields of areas of studies are very broad, and the journals cater for the various fields in what they publish. So one journal might be very generalist, so it will say we accept essentially anything and everything that is uh, published within the field of linguistics so long as it does not use X or doesn't look at Y. Mm. Or in some cases it will be, um, we only publish social linguistic research that is focused on African languages. So ah, it's like very specific. Okay. So if now you're going to be writing an article about French and sending it to that journal, no matter how brilliant that article is, the editor cannot possibly then pass the, mm. that article on to reviewers for review because it's just not within the, the journal's mandate or field of interest for publication. And in terms of, say, referencing from the particular journal yeah. that you want to submit to, is mm. that just good practice and polite mm. or is it something that's mandated that one should hopefully reference what other scholars who've published in that same journal have it's not mandated. It just shows that you are aware of the developments that are happening within that field. Remember, each journal has a niche area of specialization, as I've already said, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they're focusing on something. And if you are writing on that topic, you should surely be aware of what the debates are, what's mm -hmm. the latest research that has come out of that particular title specifically as well, to be part of the conversation. So it's more a matter of demonstrating your knowledge of what's happening and getting into dialogue and conversation with other scholars mm. rather than 
Yeah, so it's also not simply something that a scholar uses as a look I know everything that you've done but more as a this is genuinely interesting or it's interesting from this perspective and I'd like to use it or challenge it in, mm. if necessary yeah. and I mean I think that that fits in quite nicely with the question I wanted to ask you about epistemic violence mm. so what happens when someone publishes something it's gone through the peer review process it's published in a journal and people don't only just find it that they disagree with a particular point of view but they find the perspective presented to be violent that the knowledge produced mm-hmm. perpetuates some kind of mar- further marginalization of um, of groups uh, who are already always and already experiencing marginalization so this brought to mind the Rebecca Tuval scandal that happened in April mm-hmm. this year where Rebecca Tuval who's a feminist scholar uh, published an article in Hypatia uh, which is a feminist um, peer-reviewed journal comparing essentially the experiences of transgender individuals to the experiences of mostly one transracial identifying individual and scholars came out on social media and also wrote to the journal saying that this shouldn't have even gone out in the first place. Mm-hmm. I wonder what what do you make of this kind of like debate around epistemic violence mm-hmm. and what it does to what knowledge is put out there and how we, 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 we deal with ideas that are contrary to what we might ascribe to. Yeah, I'll start off by saying that I am familiar with that uh, controversy but it's not one of our titles so I won't speak necessarily from a publisher's perspective Mm. in relation directly to that article but in general in situations like this. Such things happen I think quite often Mm. I think um, where the paper will go out for review, the reviewers will make a decision on it and come back and advise the editor essentially that yes, go ahead, publish it and uh, the editor does and then boom there's just unprecedented controversy around the particular title because on one hand it deeply offends people or it hurts others and it becomes part of huge social media scandal in one way or another and the response to it in general i think across publisher is is first trying to ascertain what the reviewing process was. Mm. If the reviewing process appears to have happened as it should have, so it was a legitimate setup where the editor received an article, sent it out for review, reviewers came, did their work, gave feedback, which were then uh, fed back to the author to either to revise or whatever the case might be, comes back and it gets published. That paper essentially becomes part of the academic record and it won't be retracted on the basis that it creates the kind of you know response in people that mm. it does there are very specific conditions under which retractions become possible so if for instance it becomes clear that in the process of doing that research or of publishing that uh, paper ethical principles were violated ethical and publishing principles so maybe there's fake data you know that's involved or uh, say in the trans uh, article maybe instead of admitting that she was looking at one person, she said maybe she interviewed 50, and then it's found that no, actually, there weren't 50 transracial identifying people, but only one. That becomes a sufficient ground mm. for retracting that paper because it, it's violating academic principles of, of how to conduct research. Mm. But if from um, that field of studies perspective, that kind of writing is by and large from a publishing perspective acceptable, but it's not acceptable on the basis of the response it generates in people. It won't be retracted, unfortunately. Sure. 
Yeah, because it, the, the keeping that academic record becomes quite central and what then happens is that people can respond mm. to, to it. So good way to responding to such controversies, I think, is generally for the journal to make space for responses mm. to come. So when it becomes clear that it can't be retracted, mm. then the next step is to everyone is welcome to come essentially to if necessary devote an entire issue just responding to that paper mm. pointing out exactly what people think is problematic with it from within the discipline from outside the discipline from an ethical perspective even mm. you know or from whatever perspective but so long as it's not a violation of scholarly principles of research and publishing it's just one of those things once it's out there it's out there I guess it's also kind of walking that line between politics as we want to envision them in Mm. an academic space that they are aware and pay attention to the kind of marginalizations of the people we write about. Mm. It's not just simply generative as an interesting topic, but that somebody who is transgender identifying is going to read something and feel Mm. like this discipline sees me in these particular ways. And so... For me, it's a really contentious issue also in the social sciences that on the one hand, you see that there's this political dimension and then there's also the kind of scholarly generative conversations and how to actually speak to both of these concerns without saying, well, it's generative academically, so let's just keep... Let's keep doing it. Scholarly publishing or scholarly research or Mm -hmm. the availability thereof, it's in some way at the hands of the reviewers. So if the reviewers, because the reviewers are the people who assess the validity of the argument Mm. on the behalf of the editor, right? And by the time the publisher publishes that work, the idea is that the reviewers are the people who would have certified the integrity, Mm. the academic integrity of that work, to say, okay, as anthropologists, it is acceptable for us to argue in this manner, to bring up this controversial topic in this perspective, or, as philosophers, we can do that. But, for instance, this particular article we're talking about, I think it was a philosophy article, where it maybe from that discipline is perfectly okay to make this conjectures about, you know, if someone is this... But from an anthropological perspective, it's completely appalling. You know, if someone else would read it and be like, no, we can't. So if that same author was to send that same article to another field or another journal that published in a different field, it will obviously be rejected by the reviewers in that field because they'll say, no, this does not conform to the principles or the ways in which we do research here. Mm. But elsewhere, the reviewers saw it fit to pass it on. And once they have, it then becomes the other scholars who disagree with its responsibility to respond to it in a particular way but it's not the publisher's responsibility to retract it because then if you're a publisher and you retract articles on the basis on the controversy that they create we essentially then becoming gatekeepers of what Mm. academics decide is something that can pass so if the academics or the reviewers have said it, it passes and there is no evidence of there being a violation of scholarly practice in a way, you know, then we we just have to keep it. And these are principles that aren't set also by publishers, but they're part of a broader uh, committee where they set out very clear guidelines for all kinds of situations. So not just this, mm-hmm. like it, any kind of potential problem that you can imagine within publishing that could happen, 
they give you guidelines about what uh, what you as a publisher should do or what you as a reviewer should do or what uh, the editor can do. So for instance, if you find out that um, the review was were fake, like so no mm -hmm. review actually happened, so what are the procedures to follow and so on and so forth. And this is one such instance, you know, mm. where, some, <laughs> where things will be treated in a very, very particular way. Yeah, and I want to ask you about the kind of the types of review processes that exist. Yeah. So, is there a possibility to to be in a situation where you are writing a particular kind of work? Say, for instance, you are writing about linguistic practices amongst Amakosa, mm. and when you submit to a journal, you say, "I want to be reviewed by mm. people who are Kosa speaking or people." So mm. wh what are the types of review processes that exist and how much do I as a scholar have a say in how the review process happens? happens. The idea is that as a scholar you shouldn't really have ever say in mm. how your, your, your article that you're submitting is reviewed because then it defeats the whole purpose mm. in a sense, right? So I think in the past, and this is something that I think a lot of credible or legitimate publishers are moving away from or have completely moved away from the scholars could submit their papers and be like oh you know here's a list of reviewers you can choose from to oh. send my paper to <laughs> you know because they're the ones who understand my work you know the value of your work but that could just be an entire you know coterie of friends essentially who are going to get your paper and then are going to say oh it's wonderful you know let's go ahead and publish it mm -hmm. so now how the reviewing process is supposed to work is that you submit and then your paper gets anonymized by the editor or by the editorial assistant of that particular journal who then sends it to two, preferably, reviewers who will then give the editor feedback. Those reviewers don't know who you are mm. in a double-blind peer review system, so they won't know who you are and you won't know who they are either. So then they will take this anonymous uh, manuscript, read it, and then tell the editor that this is terrible or this is absolutely brilliant or this is average or accepted immediately without a single revision or accepted but they need to revise this and that mm -hmm. you know and these revisions could be minor or very major you know there have been instances of people submitting and then essentially getting a review that just essentially tells them that this research should never have happened you know so heartbreaking <laughs> which is terrible right and then you or and sometimes they can just outright reject it mm -hmm. so then the two reviewers get back to the editor and tell him what to do and then if the editor has the instance where both reviewers say accept, so that's then a clear-cut situation. So reviewers come back, say accept or reject, that's clearly an accept or reject situation. But in some cases you'll have one reviewer say one thing, another one say another thing, and then the editor has to then decide the next step. They could choose to find another reviewer, so a third reviewer, and then out of those three, essentially the majority voice will win. Mm -hmm. Or they could be in the executive position to say, okay, I see this reviewer might have been excessively harsh they missed these key elements of what this other review said and mm. and then maybe instead of a minor revision they decide on a major revision you mm. know for that particular paper then that's fed back to you as the author who then has to make those decisions about whether you want to take 
the reviewer's comments in or not. Mm. And this is the, the tricky part. So if it's terrible, terrible uh, comments, like where you feel like it's just too excessive, like they, they didn't understand your work, um, they might have access to grind about your particular position, you know, you can insist essentially on, you know, on your voice, but redraft or revise in light of that criticism. Mm-hmm. So I don't think discarding it entirely mm-hmm. is useful. So it's about saying, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I think maybe I'd like to rephrase it in this way, and then maybe that will make better sense for you. Mm-hmm. But I'm still essentially standing on this corner in this matter. Or you could say, oh, actually, you know, this is a terrible corner to be standing on. How did I not see that mm-hmm. saying this is so, I don't know, outside of the realms of this discipline or it's unacceptable or you are starting to feel I don't know some way about that particular work in that particular position then you can just change it or revive it entirely and and do you yeah. have recourse so say I vehemently disagree yes. with kind of the reviews mm. and I really want it to be published by yes. journal X mm. how much back and forth is in terms of back best practice but mm. also how many kind of back and forths will a uh, editor kind of entertaining it it, it varies from editor to editor right Mm. like most also I think another thing to just bear in mind quickly here is that the editor is your friend Mm. so the editor is not trying to to make your life difficult if the reviewers are making your life difficult Mm. you know the editor is engaged in this process because they run this journal which they care about and for the fact that they've sent your work out for review means that they saw something that Mm. they thought would in some way or another be of interest to their title so if then the if then the reviewers come back with something that you particularly bothered by just discuss it as well with the editor first Mm. and be like look they have said this they've just i believe in this what how do you advise or approach this and in most instances Editors, especially editors who run not big, busy, you know, journals, do usually treat them as also uh, mentorship projects, especially for younger researchers who are coming in. They care a lot that young scholars in the field are being published and are coming in with good work. So they usually are the people who will then guide you through how to best interpret reviewer comments in some instances, or sometimes. There are instances even where an editor will get uh, a manuscript and they can immediately see that it's got potential, but if it's sent out for review, it will be rejected. And so then what really caring editors do is to offer some kind of uh, development work to the author on the article and then send it out for review. And if it then gets rejected, well, then, sorry, you know, they're not going to force their bulldozer away and publish it anyway. But at least you've got that chance to get through. Mm -hmm. So an editor is your friend, is the first step to understand. Mm -hmm. And then if you then absolutely disagree, depending on what, after you've done the revision and you send back to the editor and the editor has helped you and sent out to the reviewers and the reviewers still insist, you know, on this matter that no, you must be rejected, it's probably then best to either look at another title Mm -hmm. uh, to publish, because I think some titles just have very specific parameters that Mm -hmm. they're willing to go beyond, and maybe yours is not one of them. And then so you explore something else, or um, 
in the best case scenario maybe the editor might then try and find another reviewer and mm. then again it's that thing of now it's more than two people mm. and if the third reviewer also happens to concur heavily with the previous two reviews then it's clearly a case that you're not going to be doing much about mm. i want to return to this question about picking the right journal and then yeah. knowing which title to choose from mm. but i just want to in terms of the the types of review processes because in the humanities right we, we often have this double blind situation yes, but yeah. in other disciplines what mm. other kinds of review processes can one expect to in take place. place yeah so it, it varies from discipline to discipline but a double blind peer review is the standard mm. it's the one that i think most journals do or try to do and i think it's the one that as publishers we really love because it's simple, it's straightforward, but it also really has the highest chance of maintaining the integrity of the reviewing process because you don't know who your reviewers are, your reviewers also don't know who you as the author are, so it just makes everyone communicate what they think a little mm. bit better. But you also do find single uh, blind review where the reviewers know who you are, but mm. you don't know who the reviewers are. So it's single blind in the sense that only you are in the dark. <laughs> but they not and obviously there's all kinds of potential problems there with the fact that if they hate you as a person you had a huge conference fallout or whatever the case might be mm. then you know they could just reject your work but give really good reasons for doing so mm. and then out you know that work goes but uh, the idea is again if it works for a particular discipline and those that do use it then it's fine you know it, the idea here i think that's central with all reviewing processes is that academics are seen as these they the arbitrators of what is objective mm. in assessing the work of their discipline so it, even if then they do know who you are the idea when they're reviewing your work they will do so from a place of care for the discipline rather than for themselves <laughs> and then another way um, is an open review where reviewing really happens post publication and everyone knows everyone so the author knows who's reviewing or responding essentially to the article sure. and obviously the people who respond to the article also know who you are because now that's out there within the field of philosophy specifically there was some experiments going on with a triple blind review where the editor doesn't know who the author is the author so by the time the editor gets the manuscript it's been anonymized for him or her by an editorial assistant oh, or you okay. know uh, who's working on the title so the author, the editor doesn't know the author it, he passes it he or she passes it on to reviewers who don't know the author it comes back to the editor who passes it back to the assistant who then passes it to the author sure. so no one knows anyone there so mm -hmm. it's not only trying to kill um reviewer bias against author but it's also editor bias sure. or any potential editor bias that might exist yeah mm. so, but all these experiments arise i think in review usually driven by the scholarly community so as publishers it's just about making sure that whatever review mechanism or process a particular journal chooses it is practiced in an ethical mm. manner that doesn't violate scholarly integrity mm. but we won't prescribe what form of, of peer review should be happening with the particular title so that's that's really useful to know that in different disciplines one can expect a different kind of review process but that essentially the review process is trying to 
look at the argument in of itself and not necessarily be biased yeah. to yeah. You know, exactly. I like you or I didn't like you at a conference. Exactly, mm. exactly. And um, most journals will always, or at least we encourage our titles to to list what form of review they follow in mm. their aims and scope or under their instructions for authors, where it's clear for the author before they make the submission that, okay, in this particular title, this is how... Um, I'll be reviewed, and if you have a problem with that particular form of review, then you can, at that point, decide not to make submission. And what would you say is the is the kind of best practice for young scholars who are thinking about putting their names out there because they want to get tenure, etc., and all that pressure? Local titles versus prestigious international titles, because I think there's a bit of tension that exists where people are like, if I am starting out, I should put my name in the best known journal. Mm. However, because that journal is highly subscribed, mm. it might be have a slow turnaround time. Yeah. But yeah. so, how how would you advise young scholars to think about mm. choosing local or globally or global. recognized? Yeah. One of the things that I say a lot is that being a scholar. At the heart of it is about discrimination, the ability to know, to, to be a close reader of text, to, to know your field and disciplines and where people are speaking your language, as it were. Mm -hmm. So if a local journal is the place where the kind of conversations that you are driving and that you are creating is where the meat is happening, it is at, it's the, it's the heart of the argument, there is absolutely no point in then taking your article and sending it to some internationally recognized title just out of the sense of this idea and it's also like the mislaid assumption that it has more prestige versus you know over and above the local title because some of the work i think that we do as scholars especially some of the scholars who are based within the african continent is work that doesn't necessarily yet have a voice or a space in some of these international journals, mm. but it already does have a very strong scholarly community in a form of a journal mm. happening locally. And there is no sense of why we're not supporting that and publishing there mm. instead. And I think it's based on, part of it is the Western-centric idea of scholarship, right? Mm. That if it's coming from the West, it all has been published there, it must be good. The other has to do with how we assess quality of the titles of the journals. And from a publisher's perspective, quality actually is far more holistic than that you look at. And it's not just about whether the title has an impact factor or not, or it has thousands of submissions or not. But it's about, again, it goes back to that, uh, what I was talking about here, about international publishing standards. Mm. If a journal is following those standards, even if it's a small two issues per, per annum journal and that is producing out of some small universities somewhere in Africa that is an international standard title mm. and that's what scholars need to be focusing on mm. so I mean for instance we co-publish um, with, with a co-publishing partner called uh, NISC and they're based in Grahamstown and Grahamstown is so tiny 
But the kind of scholarship that's coming out of the journals that are part of that portfolio mm -hmm. is absolutely phenomenal, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it's scholars who are based across South African universities, and some of the work actually that's being published in those titles is also coming out from overseas. So oh. they're getting submissions from elsewhere because those scholars know that it's about... So if you are a scholar who's based in the U.S. and you're writing on South African domestic work, for instance, as your area of, of research, and there is a journal that is looking at exactly that within the South African context, it then makes sense, you know, mm -hmm. to send that work there because that's where it will get most traction and response and debate, and that's what scholars should be focusing on. And so, how does one gauge impact? And and because impact is also really important mm -hmm. for performance mm. reviews etc at universities how does one know the impact of not only the journal but also of their, of their contribution work. in a journal how does one track that it varies right so the obvious one i think of it is citations mm. right so how many people are citing your work and uh, there are mechanisms of keeping track of the citations um both through Web of Science, if, you're, if the title is listed there, or through um, other, you know, uh, metrics that are present on, on the journal title level. But on an individual scholar level, you have something called the H-Index, uh, where people are able to calculate the impact of their, way, of their work based on citability of their work. Um, so essentially they take the number of articles I, I don't remember the exact formula but it's essentially something about the number of articles that you've published and the citations those articles have received over mm. the course of time and that will then give you a figure that's your age index obviously the higher the figure the higher impact you've got, the lower the figure, the lower the impact is considered to be. But from discipline to discipline, it's very difficult to make these assessments, right? So if you take something like the field of history and you're publishing something and no one is interested in it for at least a good 10 years, mm -hmm. and by the time, you know, the citations start trickling in or becoming really major because now people in the history in the field are starting to say oh actually you know that was very interesting work that was very important and they cited you a whole lot more some of those citation windows might have fallen out right because what sometimes happens especially at a journal level is that journal impact it will be measured usually on a two or three year sometimes five year phase mm, right okay. so citations that are happening in a five year period mm. and once the work falls out of that period it's, you know, it's kind of, it, it, all the citations coming to it are no longer kind of counting towards the, the impact factor of that sure. title or the, the scoring of the different metric systems, whatever it would be used. It could be Scopus, it could be um, Eigenfactor, you know, so they vary and they all have their different, um, not so much algorithms, but formulas mm -hmm. of what it is that they're looking at. But at the basic principle, it's this idea that the total number of citations over a particular period divided by the total number of outputs, whether out of that journal or out of the you as an individual scholar, then you'll get a measure of what you, the impact is. And is this something that you would encourage individual academics to be tracking for themselves or whose responsibility is it really to be doing mm. that tracking of of the of the impact so of the of, of the journals the actual impact factor 
is tracked by us as publishers. Mm. So we know what the impact factor of all our listed titles is. But not all titles have an impact factor, right? Mm. And we will also know uh, the, the, the various other metrics and how we, the, the titles are doing in those areas. And we can feed that back either to the editors or to anyone else who's interested in finding out, you know, we can tell them that. But the individual, on an individual level, um, I think the best thing is for scholars to keep track of it themselves. But also, they can only do that if I think that it's best to do that if it's part of some requirement. Say, if you apply for a particular grant, and some grants will have, you know, what is your age index. And then in that case, you need to know how to do it, and then uh, produce it. But I don't think it's something that scholars should be necessarily too concerned about, you know, too concerned with. If your work is really good and you're focusing on doing work that is novel and incredible and has, it, you know, the impact of the work should be within itself, right? Mm. Rather than trying Based to... Based on citations. Mm, I think it's a rabbit hole, but I see where it's coming from. Mm. Yeah. And, and similarly, because of the impact of social media, so there's something called an altmetric score. Altmetric, yes. So yeah. there's also this uh, kind of emphasis for academics to be using social media. So can yes. you maybe speak to what is this altmetric score and how okay. does social media feed into mm. this already Yes. Um, list of checks that you're doing about where to publish, I who know. to share it with, and and so how does social media factor into into this whole story? Okay, so the, an altmetric score is essentially a way of measuring impact outside of the scholarly pool, right? Mm-hmm. Because right now, I think the impact we've been talking about, so we've been looking at things like the age index or the impact factor and Scopus and all those other metrics. What you're essentially talking about is the impact the article or the journal has had on other academics who are citing it and are being tracked and are citing it in other journals that are also all of them within a closed pool of scholarship. So within institutions or people who are doing high-level academic research and talking to each other. Mm. Whereas the altmetric score is trying to look at what impact is that work having outside of the academy. So who's, who is tweeting about this work? who is using it in their blogs or referencing it in their blogs, who is using it in when they're editing their Wikipedia article to point out, to use it as a source, you know, mm-hmm. the reference source, who is using it um, when in newspapers, like, you know, in general newspapers where you've published something, it's of high interest, general interest, and then it's turned into general article in some newspaper. So the altmetric score is then trying to track that mm. and then give it a score and say, okay, then, so it looks like a donut, a multicolored donut, mm. and each color represents the different type of media, right, of social media. It could be Twitter, it could be Facebook, it could be Wikipedia, it could be a blog, it could be that. And each time the, the article's trackable DOI appears in any of those uh, media, the color of that donut will mm. change, right? Or it will add a layer of that color and the score keeps going up. So if it's on Pinterest, it will have a different scoring versus when it has appeared on um, a policy well, document, for mm. instance. Oh, it will have a different impact. What is not clear, though, is what is this? Like, so what score is attached to what? Mm. So okay. 
is Twitter a two versus Facebook as a one versus because that is proprietary knowledge. So it's an algorithm that the Altmetric people use, and as far as I know, only they know how mm. they it all adds up. But obviously, again, here the principle is the same: the higher that figure is, the higher the impact of that article is considered to be. And on the Taylor and Francis website, so if you look at all the articles that are published, they will have. A donut next to them, which clearly shows you what, at that particular point in time, is the alt matrix score of that mm. particular article. So, what what alt, also alt matrix does? It's moving away from the two types of of impact assessments we were talking about, where the one is looking at the author and the other one is looking at the journal, whereas this one is at article level. Mm -hmm. So it's the individual article that is getting that algorithmic score, not the author, not the journal. Mm. You see. Would it be good practice for scholars to be tweeting about their work? Absolutely. Or even yeah. asking their students to tweet <laughs> about their work? That, um, that might be a little everyone. bit unethical, I'm not sure. So, but I think tweet about it, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, self-promotion. I think self-promotion is very difficult for academics because I think part of being an academic is this self-effacing, you know, the work speaks for itself mm -hmm. vibe. and. Now we're in a completely different era, like of scholarship, where tweeting has become so important. Mm. And there has been studied or showed a link how highly tweeted articles also then have a higher chance of citation, right? Mm. So it does translate, right? So, and not citation outside of the academic space, but within the academic space. So it does translate in a lot of ways. So tweet about your article, tweet Facebook it, promote your work, mm. like promote your work. And another very important thing for academics who are based in South Africa, but well, actually not just in South Africa, but throughout the continent, is that uh, there's the conversation in Africa now, um, which are actually based here at Vets, where you can essentially take your published academic paper and turn it into an 800-word news article, where the idea of the conversation in Africa is to try and narrow, just reinterpret, essentially, the work that you've done, and you, you're, as the writer, are the person who does it yourself. So they guide you through the process of how to convert an academic piece of work into a palatable day-to-day -day conversational piece. And our office, the um, Taylor and Francis Africa, has uh, has um, partnered with the Conversation Africa to try and get the authors who publish in our portfolio of journals to essentially do that with their articles. But it usually has to be articles that are newsworthy in some way mm. or that are seen to be uh, of its significance of something immediately, like mm. in the news way, in mm. the new in the news cycle sense. But so there's all these ways, right, of mm. promoting your work that are actually in themselves quite noble rather than just seeing it as this oh me, 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 here's my work. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And also I think if you spend that much time doing something, it must mean something, mm. right? It, it can't be of no value that you are ashamed of promoting it, you know, widely and broadly to everyone. Sure. And, uh, and for listeners who didn't catch our episode 31, we did chat to the conversation oh, about the, the dissemination of 
one's scholarly writing for a wider audience. Yeah, perfect. Um, yeah. But I also want to ask you, I mean, I think some of us might be a bit confused about what does it mean when one makes their work open access? Um, and there's such a thing as golden versus green open access. Can you maybe share a little bit more, uh, a little bit about what does it mean to kind of disseminate one's knowledge, not just for public consumption in the sense of kind of writing for things like the conversation, yes. but what does it mean to make your work open access? Okay, uh, that's a very good question. So uh, open access is essentially part of a broader movement of open science where it's essentially trying to make as much of the scholarly output as open or available to the public as possible. So outside of um, essentially taking, it's breaking down that idea of academia as this ivory tower where only a few people have access to all this information and knowledge that academics are creating in these debates, but that anyone from outside of the university can access it. Mm. Traditionally, publishers have operated under a subscription model mm. uh, where the librarians will select uh, from a publisher's list of journals which, they, which ones they wish to subscribe to, and then they will subscribe to those journals for their academics, and the academics will have access to them through the university library. Meaning that if you're outside of the university library, you can't really access that work. So open access publishing is trying essentially to say or to create a situation where if you've published an article, anyone anywhere can access it without having to pay anything for it. Mm. So no one needs to subscribe to an open access journal or subscribe to have access to a particular article within a journal if the article is open access it is just like having it's like going onto the internet and then just finding it there without a paywall behind mm -hmm. which the article is, is, is closed or inaccessible and the to make that possible so in the old subscription model where the librarians are the people who are paying for, 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 for access to, to the material, in this case, it's the author who pays for publishing their work so that no one else has to pay to consume it. So you, mm -hmm. you as the author take on the cost, essentially, of producing the work, of producing that article and making it available for public consumption. Mm. So the publisher will still be under the same obligation of putting your work through production, of putting it online, of making sure that it's archived in perpetuity, that it forms part of the scholarly record, that it has a DOI, that it has all the cross-referencing and the metadata linking, you know, everything that would have happened to that article will continue happening under the open access model. The only difference here now is that once it's published, you will go on the publisher's website and it will be free. There mm -hmm. won't be a paywall for it, but you as the author would have paid. Now, it gets complex because in some instances, um, the author doesn't pay per se directly out of their own pocket, right? So they might be um, paying either out of a research grant that mm -hmm. they've received. So, for instance, if you have received any funding from National Research Foundation, uh, the NRF in South Africa, they would be more than happy for you to put aside some money within your own grant mm -hmm. to make sure that when you publish eventually your work, you are publishing it open access because they want as much of 
they in fact they want all of the work that they've um, uh, supported financially to be published mm. or to be open access in some way. So, or you could be funded by your own institution, where institutions, instead of paying money to subscribe, they'll pay money into open access publishing. So that if you, as an author from Vets, are publishing with a publisher, and uh, say Taylor and Francis, and Vets has an account with Taylor and Francis, essentially an open access account, you can then dip from that account and mm-hmm. go, okay, I am affiliated with this institution and I'd like to publish this article open access and then that article will become open access. And in some cases, um, there's discounts for mm-hmm. authors where if you are an author in a particular country, so emerging economy countries, uh, publishers are in agreements to not charge the, the, the authors coming out or the scholars coming out of those countries an open ex- APC, so article publishing charge. Mm-hmm. So your article will still be published open access, but it won't be, you, there won't be actual mm-hmm. uh, uh, cash coming out of the author if they've indicated that they want to publish open access. And the beauty of it is that the editors are not involved in the process of of issuing out the invoices or of deciding whether the article will be published open access or not. Mm. It's the author in discussion with the publisher. So it doesn't affect scholarly integrity, right? Mm. So there isn't going to be a situation where an article is accepted and then uh, the editor is like, oh no, but you can't afford to pay for for the APC, so we're not publishing your work, Mm. you know, sorry. But it's the publisher who has to then communicate essentially the finances of the of APC with the author post acceptance mm. of the article. And, and even, I think it's important to maybe also highlight that this payment for open access mm. doesn't impact the review process because you've yeah. got these predatory journals that will ask you to kind of send money in. Yes, yes. And this is a very different kind of relationship yes, that is a completely different kind of relationship so i think that one of the problems that the open access movement is i think battling with at the moment is the idea of scam titles right because what they're doing is they're giving open access a bad name mm-hmm. right because what's happening is that because it's it's clear that now you're operating in an environment where the author is expected to pay. You have essentially these uh, scam operations that have arisen out of this context to essentially charge authors the money to get published, Mm -hmm. but without all the benefits that Mm -hmm. the author will get from the usual legitimate publishing route. So essentially here, the base is to make money. Mm-hmm. Review will a review of the article won't happen. Mm-hmm. A, a pretend review will happen, right? So you'll submit today. Two days later, you're getting feedback, and um, you you are accepted essentially. And your feedback is something like quite ridiculous, like it's just a one-liner about how you know use this word instead of that word think about it this way whereas under the usual academic process the review process is quite rigorous Mm -hmm. Uh, you usually get quite extensive feedback and uh, some of it 
tends to upset you, this feedback will not upset you, okay? <laughs> it will tell you, you are great, publish, but just send money quickly, please, and then we will publish you. And you won't get published without paying the money. And also, it, it, and, it, and then the sad part, the really devastating part, is that your work doesn't become part of the scholarly record. Mm. So it exists outside of the scholarly record in such a way that if that operation was to shut down and go away, your work is also gone with it, mm. right? No one will find it. And even if people do find it in some bogus websites circulating somewhere there, they will struggle to cite it and bring it in back mm. into the scholarly record pool because it then becomes a reflection on them as people who are using work that has been published in illegitimate titles and it's become impossible really to track essentially yeah, i was gonna ask how how do you know if i'm interested in making my work open access yeah and i get told you know submit this amount how this do i know a it's real scam title well, the best method right now, it goes back again to that same thing I was saying that it's discrimination. So the, you as, the, as a scholar need to understand what makes a title legitimate. Mm. And then when you encounter a title, ask yourself, is this a legitimate title based on these things that I know, mm. right? So there's an um, organization or an initiative called Think, Check, Submit. Mm. Um, and essentially it gives you a whole list of questions that you need to say yes to mm. uh, before you can submit your work to a particular title. So for instance, do you know uh, the editor in chief, not like personally, but you know, mm. is this an existing person? Is this, are they real? Because sometimes what happens in scam operations and they just list people who aren't real mm. uh, in universities that are made up. The more intelligent ones, well not intelligent, but suave ones will list actual people, but those people actually don't know that they're part of the report. Sure, the so they're people who are actually <laughs> being, who are catfished without their own yes, knowledge that exactly, they are part of this catfishing that they're part operation. Of this catfishing operation. But if you then contact them, they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? Mm. But, um, and then other questions would be things like, uh, t do they list an address, like in a physical address? Can you contact them other than email? Because mm. publishers are very accessible people. I mean, we want to hear from you all the time, if possible, you know? So the moment then a publisher is inaccessible mm. in any other way, other than the way that they have deemed to be the way to contact you, i.e. through email, then you have a problem, mm. you know? And, um, and are they part of like recognized scholarly publishing bodies, you know, mm. like IOSPA, are there journals in the DOAJ, which is the Directory of Open Access Journals, mm. um, and so on and so forth. But always a good way, if in doubt, when you get confused, even after looking at the check submit, is to just go to university librarian. Mm. They almost always know. Okay, like which how, scam like how to assess something mm -hmm. yeah they'll be able to tell you but and also one of the things about scam operating titles is that they usually aggressively so they they aggressive at soliciting mm -hmm. uh, you know manuscripts and i mean you know journals legitimate journals sometimes do struggle with uh copy flow where uh, people aren't making submissions and it is a legitimate title but it's just like you know the, there's hurdles or one nature or another but it's very rare for them to then 
resort to spamming you, you know, mm. your inbox to be like, come and publish anything, mm. you know, will accept anything. And when that happens, you usually, again, are in, in very wobbly territory mm. that you need to be careful of. We, as a publishing industry in general, have moved away from trying to keep track of which are the illegitimate titles. Because thousands of these are cropping up all the time. Mm. And also, I don't think we can be in the position to be pointing fingers at other publishers and be like, oh, you are, you are illegitimate, you're not, you are, you know. But so what we're now doing or focusing on are a whitelisting mechanism, you know. Okay. So if is the title part of or has other titles listed in the directory of open access journals, in, or focusing on initiatives like Think Check Submit, you know, okay. what is it that you should be looking for to mm. determine legitimacy rather than focusing on what is the exact illegitimate title. So if one is asked to pay to publish, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a scam no. publication? No, it doesn't. Under what circumstances would one expect to pay to publish? In, in most instances, it will be the open access context. Okay. So we're going to publish you, you are going to pay this much, mm. and the APC is stated very clearly. So mm. it doesn't change suddenly you know between submitting and when you actually have to pay it mm. it only changes if you're getting a discount obviously mm. right but it's usually stated very clearly upfront on the publisher's website we are public we accept open access content at this price and that content uh, and and in other contexts where you might be asked to pay is for page fees but that's wow. usually very minimal it's okay. like it's it's like really small and it's usually for publishers very small independent publishers who have to somehow manage their costs of just the actual printing of the paper mm. so how many pages have they used to produce you know the the, the, the typesetting and they're trying to just salvage you know running costs within mm. their company so they'll ask you to pay page fees but page fees are so small compared to um open access fees because mm -hmm. an open access fee is beyond the production process right mm -hmm. it's about the preservation of the article beyond production but in perpetuity mm -hmm. because this free access that the people get to the article is in perpetuity mm -hmm. and it happens immediately upon publication and there's a second element to open access which are open access publishing which i forgot to mention so the first is the fact that it's available immediately upon publication and in perpetuity and then the second element is that it's reusable with little or no restrictions by other parties open access essentially it's it's the commons so I could, I could print as many copies as i want exactly. i could put it on t-shirts exactly you mix it in a song that's so what you can do in this reuse is determined by the license that the author signs okay right so the author signs that there are different licenses that are available within open access publishing so on the at the basic level it's the license that just allows people to reproduce the whole article without alterations right mm -hmm. so it's like yes you can do whatever you want with it so you can put it you can put in a book edited collection and you all you have to do is just acknowledge who the author is mm. and keep it in its entirety and in some instances a license will allow you to exactly do exactly what you say remix remash cut it up put it as part of some other broader exhibition somewhere mm. 
again it's or in some instances it's um so it, the restrictions that the author puts in the license that they choose mm. is what determines what you then can do afterwards with the sure with the article yeah sure this is really rich and fascinating and i thank you so much for joining us uh, it's, it's been a, a really rich conversation and uh how can people contact you uh email address to use will be africa at tnf.co.za Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Smusso Tlajwayo. I'm a student at FITS. Um, To be quite honest, the very few times I've read journals, I've struggled understanding the contents. It's like the authors are flaunting their English or knowledge with big concepts and jargons. At the end of the day, the contents are just too heavy and boring and definitely do not appeal to me as a student. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of WITS University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at WITS. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem. Jager Malko created our jingles.